welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by Yulaili Das, who is the Global Programme Manager for the Safe Cities for Girls programme at Plan International. I'm really looking forward to our chat today, Yulaili. Thank you, Vicky. Likewise, I'm really glad to be able to uh, bring forth our programme that we have at Plan and uh, also talk about some of our young people's experiences in the Safer Cities. The Safer Cities for us is like the big passion which continues to, you know, fuel our gender work, gender transformative work. So I'm really pleased to be here today and I'll also be joined by a few of my colleagues and a couple of very, very smart young persons who will also add their thoughts into the whole uh, discussion. It'd be great to see all the, hear all these different perspectives from the programme and what it looks like in different parts of the world. So just as a starter, could you introduce Plan International and what you do in terms of your urban work, please? So Plan International is a, a development and humanitarian organisation that advances children's rights and equality for girls. It was founded in 1937 and uh, we strive for a just world working together with children, young people, our supporters, partners, everyone. Regarding our urban work, given uh, the diversity of actors, interests and resources that are already available in the urban setting, cities actually offer a very unique opportunity to advance planned strategic ambitions for movement building, particularly around gender equality, girls' rights, to build better partnerships with uh, a diverse range of organizations and generally becoming you know, more agile in terms of our response. We're very conscious that there is a high demand for plans, uh, gender transformative work aimed at enhancing the rights and opportunities for children and young people. We've now formed an urban hub within our organization to harness these opportunities that the urban setting offers to strengthen our comprehensive and unified response towards addressing the challenges for children and young people in urban areas. Apart from that, we have programs like the Safer Cities for Girls, like the Girls Out Loud, which particularly focus on working with young people uh, through various means in urban areas. And focusing on safer cities for girls, what's the big idea behind the programme? Well, (laughs) the the big idea behind it that girls have access and they have the right to have spaces across wherever, whichever manner they wish to. That was the big idea. So Safer Cities for Girls was co-developed by Plan International together with UN Habitat and Women in Cities International in 2014. And it's sort of a groundbreaking initiative that seeks to close uh, you know, existing gaps between urban programming, targeting only youth or women and focusing very clearly on adolescent girls who are often you know, the most vulnerable, excluded population in the city. They're often left out. So the idea was to bring them together in partnership through creating opportunities, skills for youth-led advocacy, engagement, and influencing. The program recognizes that sustainable change is only possible by working across different levels in a holistic ecosystem. So it works to influence not only governments, institutions, and policymakers to develop more inclusive and responsive laws, but it also engages with families and communities to create that empowering and inclusive ecosystem. And of course, with our young adolescent uh, girls and boys who become the champions of change. The program uh, right now, the model that we have at Plan, it's a globally united and a locally implemented program, which brings together partners across 15 cities in Asia, Africa, Middle East, Europe, and Pacific Islands, Oceania, for putting adolescent girls at the center of transforming cities, 
into places of inclusion and uh, tolerance and opportunity for everyone. So to help us better understand the scale and dimensions of the problem which you're solving, in numbers and also just some of the experiences that you hear from your research, what are the everyday experiences of girls and young women in these cities? And what are the factors behind them being excluded from current safety policies and urban development processes? You would be aware, Vicky, that, uh, you know, we'll have around 700 million girls, I think, living in urban areas by 2030. And this is a UN resource that I'm quoting. With such a huge population of young women who are young girls and are staying in urban areas, we need to have significant access to various services. Some of our studies uh, from 2014, we've had multiple global research. I'll, I'll quote one of the latest ones. Uh, in 2018, we did a unsafe in the city report, where uh, which showed that at least 80% girls living in cities like Delhi, Kampala, Lima, Sydney, Madrid do not feel safe in their city. And we did a repeat study very recently in you know, Germany, Hamburg, Berlin, Munich, Cologne in 2019-20. And we used the free-to-be app to do so. And we had 1,000 girls and some 1,300 women put pins on you know, a digital map explaining whether they feel safe or not. We had 91% girls and around 28% boys who've already experienced sexual harassment. Similarly, in Belgium and Spain as well, huge, more than 90% young women feeling unsafe in public areas across cities. So we're seeing that irrespective of the country, the different geographies, the cultures, girls feel unsafe in public spaces. There is a strong breakdown in accountabilities towards adolescent girls in cities. The adolescent girl is left to navigate that entire space alone with no support, no cohesion, no mentoring. We see a lot of policies that target younger people as in the youths. But you don't see that adolescent group being targeted. Even when you're targeting uh, young youths, you're only looking at adult or adult women per se. The adolescent girl sort of falls through the cracks. Unfortunately for us, across many cities, because the spaces are so gendered right now and there is so much invisibility in terms of policies and schemes, so adolescent girls sort of slip through the cracks. You don't, these are missed opportunities for us. With so many young girls in cities who have access to education facilities uh, in comparison to other spaces, who have the potential to be very politically active, who are less likely to, you know, be married at an early age. These are missed opportunities for us who are totally, you know, apart from the urban development process. They should rather be involved in the urban design to look at things from their point of view. And this is what we did a few researchers. We did a few pilot projects with uh, using the tool Minecraft. And we strongly feel that their perspectives do not get captured when we, did, when we do safety audits in our program. We've seen very clearly that the design of a space is totally adult, is totally patriarchal. So when you don't have spaces to support them, they don't access those spaces or they move away from those spaces. Particularly, you know, after you, especially the COVID crisis, now with the COVID crisis and the economic recession that we're seeing these days, situation is extremely challenging. And across, across the globe, there is no country that is left. It's shifting the focus from girls' issues. I mean, we're already seeing and anticipating a, a significant number of adolescent girls to sort of uh, dissociate from the education cycle in the next year or so, particularly due to early marriage, forced marriage, child care, income generation activities. You know, there is a much stronger need for accountability to ensure that adolescent girls have access to you know, better policies, more inclusive policies and services. Unfortunately, right now, the situation is not so. So Safer Cities for Girls engages from individual and family to community to city to policy. Could you talk about what that looks like and how you are able to use evidence or insights from different levels to influence others? The programme is actually multi-sectoral and it has multiple dimensions. So it engages with all segments of people or agencies that impact the issues. We have, on one hand, we're working with policymakers, operational leaders at 
city, district, grassroots levels. We're working with lawmakers, transport departments, law enforcement agencies, academic institutions, university schools, private sectors, NGO, CBO, and of course, working with the wider community of parents and caregivers, and yeah, adolescent girls and boys and young girls and boys. This is the whole framework or the network of people who we have within our program. The processes are such that, uh, you know, they engage each sector meaningfully through a lot of collaborative and co-creative tools. For example, adolescent girls use safety audits to assess how safe a place is, a place which they traverse each day, work with the community on developing positive outcomes that they would like to see and a very conjoint action plan. Simultaneously, uh, on the other hand, they would also be doing multi-level advocacy through various campaigns, meetings, etc., many of which they design themselves. So the first point that I want to bring out then for this is that the solution-oriented strategy uses intergenerational approaches that brings together you know, adolescents, young people, and adults, and the grassroots level service providers within their area. So that's one level that we're talking about. Tools like, you know, young citizen scorecards, uh, which are social accountability tools that they use. It's a very symbiotic process that engages children, community, service providers to analyze and improve the services in the community. This is that one level that we're talking about. Apart from this, we also use a lot of, you know, innovative engagement modalities, uh, particularly inclusive gender transformative approaches, uh, feedback and participatory research tools, and so many other things to be able to blend learnings from the community to the next level up, to the district, to the state and the city. The gender transformative influencing strategies that we have where we connect all of these people, it promotes to build a very empowering social environment. And of course, what is most important in all of these is that the entire process is very participatory and it is led and co-created by these young people. So the processes that connect together are co-created by the young people. You know, when you start with a group, you have participated research tools that they use to assess their own community, to find out what services they need. They build their own capacities through a lot of, you know, training curriculums that we have for uh, young girls, young boys, different stakeholders, government, transport, police, to build up their knowledge. Then use that to do a lot of awareness raising campaigns or whatever sort of campaign or uh, advocacy that they need to do to be able to access that policy. Sometimes things are solved at the community level. Sometimes they're not. They need to go up the ladder. So when you need to go up the ladder, that cohesive approach of bringing people together, not only the young people, but the adults, but the lead and the co-creator always remains the young people. I think that is the USP that we have where our processes connect the gained knowledge of young people with inclusive practices towards a shared social accountability. We'll talk to some of your colleagues and also some of the young change makers from different cities around the world. But could you give us a, a quick guided tour of what cities you're in and maybe pick out some of the highlights? If a cities program tries to build a safe, accountable and inclusive cities with and for adolescent girls in all of their diversities, what we aim is safe access to public spaces, autonomous mobility, and meaningful participation in urban governance and development. In order to do that, we are working right now in 15 cities across. We have Delhi and Jaipur in India. We have Kampala and Nairobi in Kenya and Uganda. We have Hanoi in Vietnam. We have Cairo, Alessandria, Asut in Egypt, Belgium, Spain, Germany. Honiara, Honiara Islands. So there, there are a whole lot of Philippines, 15 cities across who bring different um, you know, ways of engagement with the young people. The program in that sense, in the way I mentioned a while back, is it's locally implemented. But what is critical or what is unique within our program or what binds us, some of the key strategies that we have is a journey. Safer Cities for Girls is more like an empowerment journey for young people for their own personal learning as well as for the community services. That is the approach that we have taken. So we would uh, learn about diverse needs of young people. Now again, that is through participatory research, which they do themselves using tools like safety audits, using tools like participatory mapping and uh, some of the other 
more cohesive. So we've used mediums like theater, we've used various mediums and folks for sports, we've touched rugby, we have karate, we have a camera for that. We have a partnership with Canon to be able to do that uh, through photography in three cities in Belgium and Spain. So different methods that we use to learn about what young people in their communities need. All of it, like I said before, is young people need. Now, post that learning, we connect with them through multiple paths to be able to highlight and uh, you know prioritize their issue. So when you prioritize their issue, they prioritize it themselves using multiple causal pathways of what is the most required or what is the most important or let's say most viable way. So you have, for example, you know, in, in Hanoi, in our program, we work primarily through schools and universities where the young people talk about their issues. But in a space like, let's say, Delhi or Jaipur or uh, even in Egypt, we're working very strongly with, uh, you know, slums, urban slums and communities and connecting them through different networks. In Lima, for that matter, in Peru, we are working with young people. Now young people have formed their own groups, their own formal groups where they are attempting to take that lived journey that they have had and progress it to the next level. So there are multiple causal pathways, multiple things that are contingent on how they connect, but that is their way of connecting. And third bit is co-creating solutions. It's a very solution-oriented program. Ultimately, we are talking about better access to safe public spaces. So in order to have access to public spaces, you need infrastructure support, you need community support, you need people to become more active, you need bystanders to become active agents. We can have the best infrastructure in the world and still uh, no change in attitude of people, poor attitudes of people towards gender still has a lot of catcalling. So ultimately what matters is that holistic ecosystem where everybody comes forward to do their bit into the whole thing. So co-creating solutions with young people, young boys and girls on what could be potentially transformative solutions that are responsive to their needs and are very localized. Could you share some different examples of these changes that you see from across the program, please? In India, when we were moving from safety audits to prioritizing issues and using community scorecards to arrive at solutions, and one of the big issue that people were facing was the street lights. You have public toilets here, which are accessible only during fixed timings. If you don't use them, they are shut down and they're closed. And then young girls or adolescent girls have to go out in the open, which is very risky. So ultimately arriving to a solution of, they said that you have to rotate. If you don't have money, let us take, and there were a group of parents who took up the responsibility till the time the council could not appoint more people or more staff to be able to open it 24-7 to rotate and maintain those services so that young girls and women could access the public toilets. Similarly, there was another case where, uh, you know, children who were not able to go to school because uh, they used to get harassed on their own. So they complained and they got the police to be involved and the local law enforcement agencies put up patrols which is a very short-term solution. It's a very short-term solution that happened, but that happened within 48 hours of that discussion. And ultimately, after that, they did a lot of awareness around that area and awareness around that area with the local shopkeepers and the people who are there on the road. So you have these shops, local shops that are there. You have milk booths that are open at that point. So they were sort of solicited to become active change agents within the program. So anytime you see you know, a group hanging out and trying to harass a girl. These are the local change agents who come forward, who become champions for us. So it's like everybody coming together uh, to solve this issue. And of course, this very recently, we've also developed a training module for the police personnel on how to become, how to do gender responsive policing. Because many a times we realized we are all, uh, you know, categorized within our own boxes and within our own dimensions and peripheries and sometimes they need to be shattered and disrupted before we can uh, you know absorb more inclusive approaches in life so there's local change within the community within other members of the community there's changes with in terms of recommendations that are being enacted by municipal authorities but then there is also wider dissemination um, at, at lots of different 
levels and at a global level as well to really increase uh, awareness of the need to take the perspectives and concerns of young adolescent girls and boys in urban spaces seriously. The change that I see largely is young people taking ownership in themselves. Now, they could be examples at a much grassroots level, they could be examples at you know the city level, the national level, and even representation in global forums. But uh, so when I see, for example, in Lima, you have uh, young people who've reviewed their local development plans uh, in Honiara, where the groups where the city did not have a single case of COVID, but the city was still shut. These um, and it's a very, very, very recent program that uh, that is started in Honiara only a year back. And uh, but you know, if there is a mindset change even within that phase, which uh, you know, young boys and girls. Uh, at least have that understanding that uh, the spaces should be equally accessible to people of all genders, all ages, and it has to be able to absorb uh, that um, that traffic on the road. I think that attitude change for me is one of the big uh, successes because only when we create that strong belt, and of course there is requirement for support in terms of inclusive policies, there is in, you know, functional and operative uh, structures and implementing um, schemes and processes. But for me, the first step of the whole program has always been this, this, this whole you know, group or this whole uh, you know, people, young people who, who see that attitude shift because they carry that attitudinal shift throughout their whole life. And these are young people at the cusp of being adults. So the, this responsibility or this change in attitudes and change in uh, behavior will carry forward not only for themselves, but for their peers, but for them, uh, when, they, when they themselves become caregivers. So that's a whole intergenerational cycle. And that's a big success. In relation to COVID-19, what are the main uh, adaptations in terms of response or new priorities are you, have you been working on over the past few months? COVID, COVID has actually been a big leveler in that manner. The pandemic has really exposed uh, the fault lines in our government structure, systems and procedures. We've seen increased sexual violence against women and girls. We've seen uh, you know, limited ability to access support. So there has been, it has been a real disruptor uh, at this point. But uh, what we also feel is that it's right now is more critical that we invest in young people because we need to strengthen our uh, age and gender responsive social capitals if we are aiming for accountability. So the program has definitely, um, like every program has across the social de development sector right now, gone through a lot of... Uh, a few changes and adaptations post-COVID. One, of course, is that um, so Safer Cities for Girls was always a very hands-on program. It was a it was a journey, like I said. So it was a very hands-on program where we were connected with young people. Now, because of lockdowns, that was unfortunately not possible. So we've moved a whole lot of our programs, a whole lot of our capacity-building initiatives, of our connections to the virtual medium. So adapting to that using different mediums that are accessible, because we also have to realize here is that access to internet is also not, is a luxury in many places, if I may put it like that. Mm. Um, plus, you know, families, in, in, in vulnerable families, you usually are having shared handsets. You don't have individual handsets and which even your handset may be a feature phone. So a lot of our, Various apps like we're using Zoom right now will only work on a smartphone. Not many people would have access to that smartphone. So, or even if they do it shared within three members of the family, including the father, the brother, and whoever. So you don't have that private space to be able to access. So that has been a big challenge and people differently. So you have girls and boys, women and men, people of other genders. They're all um, differently affected. And... We also need inclusive measures which recognize those gendered capabilities of people, especially you know, girls and accessing digital services. So a lot of our focus in the past few months has also been that, you know, enhancing uh, capabilities of uh, young girls to be able to access digital services, not only in terms of handsets or social media or other stuff, but also how they do it and where they do it. So you have uh, 
people in Lima or young people in Lima taking it to one level of uh, doing a completely digital campaign on reducing gender-based violence. We've had uh, groups in uh, Delhi who are using it for social advocacy with their local councillors where they've got gotten on the local council WhatsApp group and using that social media for advocating for their own issues. You know, pe young people are using digital mediums differently. And the program in the past uh, few months has also adapted to support in terms of appropriate tools and appropriate um, you know, learning to and spaces to strengthen this leadership and the meaningful participation of young girls uh, in these perspectives. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. To find out more about the Safe Cities for Girls programme in different cities in the world, I spoke to Yalili's colleagues, starting with Krati Sharma, who is Plan International's country lead for Safer Cities for Girls in India. The idea is to engage youth and the idea is that this is a youth-led initiative, it's their spaces and they know these spaces the best. This tool was safety audit methodology, piloted in Canada by an organization called Matrix and then in India by several organizations it got adopted. We also use that tool where youth groups actually map these public spaces on different parameters, on various factors that contribute to making any space safe or unsafe. And they prepare a checklist and they mark against those indicators. And then they come back and then sit together and they analyze the entire stuff. And when they actually walk from one point to the next point on that street and try and look at all these factors, they actually look at it from a gender lens at this juncture would a girl stand or would a boy stand and that's how the discussion happens we have also realized in this process that it's not just about the infrastructure or it's not just about the police to maintain law and order there are multiple factors that contribute to making a public space either safe or unsafe there are multiple actors public spaces are dynamic in nature they're always changing so it requires multi-sectoral response and these boys and girls have understood this thing in the process of bringing about change, transforming their public spaces. When they come back, they sit and they segregate all these observations into various recommendations, which gets translated into these recommendations for different stakeholders. If they find out that there is a park which has several components that make it unsafe or unusable, then they would reach out to the concerned authorities. So this is how the process happens. They use another tool called scorecard. When this safety audit is done, when the data is collected, analyzed, they need to get it endorsed. They need to get the larger community on board. That's when they do the voting and they, they try and get their findings stamped or verified or also getting con community confidence proceeding forward. So that's when they do the community scorecard process, which is followed by interface meetings with the concerned stakeholders and regular advocacy, which happens at, the, at their level. Chase the stakeholders because it just doesn't happen over one letter or one meeting or in one go. It doesn't work like that. There are rounds and rounds of meetings and letters, multiple signature campaigns that these boys and girls, they consistently follow. That's how the advocacy efforts turn into change. Another part of this process is getting the stakeholders on board, getting them oriented on the concept of women's access and girls' access to public spaces and the concept of safety and inclusion and diversity in public spaces. So we work alongside on that component. And at the same time, we also work on the component of bridging the gap between these youth leaders and those stakeholders. So initially facilitating those meetings, those interactions. And over a period of time, we have observed that these boys and girls are now in a position to directly interface with the public stakeholders. 
but it's this consistent effort made on part of these boys and girls these young people and they maintain these records these files letters petitions continuous meeting and you have to see how smart they are they have made their ways into like social media whatsapp groups where they take pictures they collect evidence so all of this is extremely evidence based it's not just going there and saying stuff it's collecting evidence collecting enough garnering public support and then reaching out to the concerned stakeholders that this is a problem we have overflowing drains we have community toilets where latches are broken and therefore girls cannot use them we have issues where the windows are broken and there are boys peeping into the community toilets so these are real issues these are lived realities of these communities and therefore the way they advocate for it is also extremely passionate and they continuously chase then i spoke to tran min quang plans project officer for safer cities for girls in vietnam we work with our partner agency the government agency to set up the 54 the champion of train club including the 27 boy clubs and 27 run club in the 26 secondary school and just for this university in hanoi and every month we have monthly meeting follows the curriculum of the champion of train for the boy and for the girl and they have a meeting together they have a meeting uh, separately and sometimes we have as a meeting together to dialogue to uh, to understand about gender gender by violence and uh, sometimes we discuss about some skill how to prevent the gender by violence or harassment in in hanoi in uh, city in the public spaces the champion of chain club member is a core member to organize um, uh, some the peer to peer communication event like in their school or in their university we have a quarterly uh, meeting and the, the champion after after the building capacity they can develop the program agenda to communicate with their friends the parents on the issue of the gender inequality and also the gender violence sexual harassment in the public space in the community in the school lizers uh, and in the community the community and so annually we have integrate in the uh, some school and our university activity to, to complete we have sometimes we organize school wide or university wide communication event to raise awareness of the student of the parent of the teacher and the, the local people on the gender equality and gender violence prevention i also spoke to lydia tebekanya plan international's country lead for the program in uganda we do recreation activities we do awareness creation in order to ensure that the city is safe we also do gender trainings for transporters gender trainings for government staff we do gender training for religious and cultural leaders to ensure that they are able to respect the rights of the adolescent girls some of the issues we've been working on are ensuring that uh, girls with disabilities are able to present the issues that are affecting them we worked on the issues of ensuring that there is street lighting on the on the streets we worked on ensuring that the uncompleted buildings which were used by thugs are demolished in the different communities we worked on issues of ensuring that the roads are given names and that there are signposts on the different roads and the different buildings and these we did at the level of the division with the technical people the girls did advocacy at the kcca central level and they also did advocacy on those issues with the members of parliament and on different international days where they were presenting the issues on how they wanted to make changes within the city the decision makers are engaging well with the girls in the program 
A case in point is the mayor of one of the divisions, Kawempe Division, who said his office is open for the adolescent girls to always go there and they present their issues. They are actually very welcome for the adolescent girls. And finally, I spoke with Diana Rodriguez-Lopez, Plan International's country lead for Safer Cities for Girls in Peru. Lima is a city that has one of the biggest rates of gender violence in all the world. Sexual harassment is a problem that it's, it's not only a very big problem in the city and in the country, but that is also very normalized. When we started the, the project here three years ago, we started to have these sessions using this Champions for Change model, which is a global model that we use with adolescents in order to give them or to strengthen the soft skills of the adolescents, you know, about uh, skills as communication, assertive communication, teamwork. And then we started to talk with them about specific topics as gender violence, gender equality, security in public spaces. And with the boys especially, what we work with them was topics about you know, the different types, the different ways to live their own masculinity. And in this journey with them, we developed some engagement activities too. For example, personal defense with girls, and boys too, some cooking activities, cooking workshops with boys, and also some uh, specific dynamics, you know, in the workshops that help them, help the adolescents to know each other and to start uh, having confidence uh, among them. Regarding the changes in the society, in the community, and with authorities, I think that we have a big problem here in Lima and in Peru, that is that we always put the adulthood in the middle. We are always thinking that we can uh, solve the problems that involves adolescents and children, but from our point of view. And I think that is something that has been changing step by step and that we have contributed to with the project. To find out more about the different experiences of young activists who've taken part in the Safer Cities for Girls programme in different cities around the world, I spoke to three young women who've been leading change in their communities as a result of what they've learned. I spoke to Duong Fuang An, a young activist and a member of a Champions of Change club from Safer Cities for Girls in Hanoi, Vietnam. I was born and right here, and the first thing I want to say about Hanoi is that it's a very vibrant and a very diversity. So you could see a lot, so see a lot of people here. You can access modern services, entertaining centers, so a lot of things. However, there are also some drawbacks. The first one is that it has terrible transportation. The traffic is not really good, and some people may say that it's a, a non-stop city because people usually break the traffic law, so it could be dangerous, really dangerous for the girls sometimes to participate in uh, the traffic here. As a girl, uh, my main transportation is bus. It's a public, only public transportation in Hanoi. But there's a problem is that usually the buses, they can't follow the public timetable because of the traffic jam and the terrible traffic. So it uh, creates a lot of discomfort and inconvenience for the passengers. So the first time that I heard about the Safe City project was two years ago when I was at Transportation and Communication University. So I joined the club, the Champions of Change Club, and since then I was involved in the activities of the Safe City project. My club was founded about two years ago, and since that time we hold a meeting club every two weeks with plan international staff to learn about how to do a campaign, how to run a campaign, how to do a youth leadership in our community. Also, we learn about all the knowledge about girls' rights and genders, things like that. Also, we do campaigning, for example, like we organize a store in Walking Street, which is a very crowded area in Hanoi, so that we can cascade information about our project, about gender equality and gender-based violence. We also went to social services center to work with often the children and the people, the vulnerable people, to help them 
to uh, get access to uh, what is gender equality and how to apply them in their life. One of the techniques that our club usually use is role play acting. So we did a lot of plays for the audience to watch us and to really reflect on what they have experienced and how that they can change in their society. For me, it was fun and quite rewarding because I think that I could help people through that. Also, I think it is a good way, an effective way to get more people to be involved in our project. Or maybe through my story, I could inspire more girls to live their own life in a more meaningful way. Also, we want to assess the youth. So that's why we worked with a lot of university to organize. The first one is a debate competition on what is a safe city for girls. And the next one is a competition on designing presentation. I, now we are organizing a competition which is design a safe, smart and inclusive presentation. So we have to postpone it for quite a long time. And when we finally decided to do the preliminary round, Hanoi suddenly got the first case of COVID-19 and we get into the second wave of COVID. So it's well, quite challenging for all the logistics things because we lack of human resources. A lot of club members just went to their hometown because they're worried about their health. And also we cannot gather a lot of people in one place. So there was a lot of effort from our club to make the competition happen. Recently, we finally came to the final product. We have a boss model now. We finally finished uh, all the designing part. So it's all great. I think it's really important to have the youth voice in this year for decision makers to really consider the youth in their decision because we, we are the future and we could be the generation to make changes. And the power holder, usually they are very old. And in Vietnam, they are very old. So maybe their decision couldn't be really inclusive to us. That's why I think that the youth should be heard. I also spoke to Juliette Namire, a young activist involved in Safer Cities for Girls in Kampala, Uganda. According to me, Kampala City is both good and bad. Starting on the good side, while moving on the streets of Kampala, the streets of Kampala are good. During the night, there is light. There are street cameras which help in the capturing of bad doers. Then when you come to cleanliness, there are dustbins which makes Kampala a clean city and which makes it safe for girls while moving. On the bad side, when you move deeper into Kampala district, to the small communities like the slum areas, there's a lot of darkness in those communities. Then there is a lot of that in those small communities, there is a lot of crimes in those communities, which hinders the safety of girls in those slum areas. I've been able to use the tool of safety work in Kampala district, and I was able to find out the safe and unsafe places in my community, whereby I was able to knock them down and put them forward to the people in charge so that they can help us make our community safer for us. They were able to listen to me while I was giving them my ideas and they were able to implement what I, I had suggested for them to do for me as a girl to be safe in my community. There were implementation of street naming. The streets were named. They were able to put street lights on the streets where they were, no light. Then there were cameras which were put on the roads to, to decrease the criminal crime rate in Kampala district. We young people are the ones who face these problems. That's why we are the ones who should give out to them our problems. I also spoke to Marjorie Mauricio, a young activist involved in Safer Cities for Girls in Lima, Peru. I live in Lima and my experience about of my city and maybe I consider Lima is the capital of my country and for that reason maybe the people think that 
uh, all the people who live in that city maybe have a lot of uh, service, but um, not because in my case, I live in Carvajillo. Uh, I consider Carvajillo is a young community. Uh, for, for example, the people who live in that place, it's very difficult be because don't have a lot of access or service like a internet, uh, health, uh, maybe education. It's very difficult. But for that reason, CEVIG and Blank International always have or find uh, some opportunity to help the people, uh, the shy, the children and the teenagers. I am a member of Young Organization, which is called CEVIG. Um, it's organization work in my community, which is Caraballo. Also, I am a member of another organization, which is called Comulia. Uh, is, that organization is led by young women's leaders and for adults. For that, uh, it's a good question because an organization led by teenagers is very difficult. We have to overcome challenges such as digital gaps. For example, many of my parents don't have internet access, don't have a mobile phone, or others uh, having mobile phone, but she having to share with their uh, siblings. Due to this situation, we have to coordinate and carry out surveys on which platform could be used to the meetings and we decide uh, WhatsApp because it, it, that app is a little cheaper here. We decide to start the meeting in this app. Then we have to help to help of plan, which was a great help because it gave towel, ta tablets. Mm -hmm. and pay internet top apps. About the process, this is interesting because as I said at the beginning, the fact of leading an organization but activist adolescents, I think that it helped us to develop new skills like preparing our post, coordinate the attempts for the next meeting, uh, distribute roles and tax. And the most important thing that I consider all, all of, of all this is that it has allowed us to strange ties as a family. Um, and finally, our success of all the rewards after many efforts where were to participate in different virtual space, such as forum or dialogue space, and articulate with, I also consider as success the experience and knowledge. For each forum, we have, we have had a follow-up prior to the presentation, learn in different spaces, be, feel self-confident, and don't have afraid to participate in space, in virtual space, because of my college have the opportunity to participate in, in, in virtual space with authorities. I mean, it was great, great uh, for us. I would like to talk about uh, the many, many opportunities have uh, and in plan, like my my international experience was women deliver. Always, always mention that because uh, um, thanks about that that opportunity, I meet a lot of activists, uh, adolescents, and I learn about that. I meet um, maybe uh, incredible, amazing persons. I live amazing moments that always uh, save or always remain remember in my hair and and well I don't want to end this conversation 
if before I tell you that adolescents are agents of change, therefore we are not only the future, we are the present and the future. And that is all. <laughs> very good message. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. We're looking at two dimensions of innovation in this report. One is disruption and one is scalability. So when you look at Safer Cities for Girls in terms of how it represents a disruption to the system, how would you describe this? Plan. International has always uh, traditionally, you know, largely worked in vulnerable rural pockets. So all of our strategies, guidance were largely attuned to the rural space. So for us, one of the biggest disruptors in thought was a completely, you know, urban-centric, urban-influenced program. So internally, I see a big disruption in thought even within the entire plan program to create that appreciation and appetite for urban programming within the organization. In that sense, it has been a real path breaker. Now we have a lot of programs tweaking their methodologies to adapt to the urban space. In fact, uh, in 2020, this year, we've also set up an urban hub, which will act as a global platform to coordinate the strengthening of urban programming knowledge and practice, both within plan and try and advocate that to ex- through the external world as well. So that you see is the change or the impact that this program has brought internally within the organization. In, in terms of society, in terms of an external society, the entire concept of making spaces accessible to young people, to young adolescent girls in itself is a big society disruptor. And this is the inherent idea we've grown up with. It is for adults, it's for people. Young people are always by default because they are in the care of elders, in the care of adults, be it parents, be it school, be it institutions. So they are supposed to only accompany them. So the idea that they can own that space, they can access that space is in itself a big disruptor. Uh, disruptor to thoughts and to people's ideas, identities. I remember when we started going to government agencies, when the program started, entire big response was, why particularly adolescents? You have child-friendly cities that are designed, or you have components of child-friendly cities, and you have children not to be accompanied by adults. Why do they need to come in separately? Why do they need spaces to hang out, particularly adolescents? They just have adolescent girls, or they have to stay at home, study, take care of family and get prepared to be mothers and daughters. And even if they're working women, they work with the control of the family. So the idea that, no, they can navigate their own space was a big societal, cultural disruptor that we started with. And I'm very happy to say that now, after years of programs around that, I see parents, I see caregivers coming up and saying, yes, we recognize that these public spaces are also meant for them and they have a unique set of concerns and we need to address them. We've had agencies, we've had government departments now acknowledging that not only locally, but also globally. So this is the core of our disruption. So could you expand more on the different types of experimentation involved in the programme, please? There have been many experiments in the program with technology, photography, art, sports, karate, things that we never did. I mean, street theatre is something which you would normally associate with an NGO using a methodology. But sports, not so much. Art, not so much. Very recently, in Egypt, we've, had, we've been working with artists around creating you know, art, graffiti on walls as a means to not only create awareness about an issue that is still a taboo. I mean, the ministries or the local authorities in Cairo or Asut or Alexandria often feel that sexual harassment is not an issue that our women face, that our young people face in the city. It's been a challenge despite working there for so many years. We, we still face such statements of this being not an important issue, but it is. This helps create awareness. But also, it is a means of doing a lot of psychological counselling for young people, using art to vent their frustration out, to creatively 
design productive solutions to that issue this is extremely wonderful program something i'm really passionate about so i can talk for hours and hours on the various examples that we've had across cities but the core issue is that these are all locally designed solutions which sort of are weaved together to have global impact and coming now to scalability what does that look like for the program i think the scalability of the entire safer cities for girls program comes from um, comes from the inherent structure and design of the program and I, which is multidimensional intergenerational so it's addressing uh, it's multidimensional because it talks about the entire ecosystem intergenerational because it connects young people adults children agencies institutions and most importantly for me that it is co-created with young people it is not something which was developed by adults in a workshop because we wanted to connect or because plan wanted to connect adolescents with safer cities the the first survey that happened towards safer cities was was just to find out you know what the situation is and how can we work on that i mean i'm coming from a perspective where plan did not have a lot of programs in urban space in fact i think at that point we did not have any significant a large program in an urban space so we were coming with the idea of let's see what happens and that's where the core issue the young people came up with that this is a big core issue for us and we've always loved going back to the drawing board with them so that for me is a big big uh, key factor for uh, for the scalability or the acceptance of the program it was intentionally created to be replicated in other cities so that was another big idea let us look at activities let us look at approaches intervention which can be taken from one context to the other so hence you see uh, that the you know the activities that are developed or the resources that are developed are easily adapted to fit different contexts including uh, for let's say for example specific catchment areas in a city uh, such as uh, urban slum and similar the same approach can again be upscaled to a city wide approach for you know big mega cities or even smaller urban centers across the globe so that was the uh, that has always been a core idea underpinning all of our program approaches within the program program in india is now uh, collaborating with the national institute of urban affairs to develop uh, child friendly and adolescent friendly indicators for cities so we have a young people so that these local adaptations that keep happening in each city and in individual situations they bring out the big uh, how do i put it so the big local solutions are inherently very scalable in their nature and they have been key success factors for us to be able to achieve where we are so my next question what are your kind of key takeaways for other organizations also working in urban areas or wanting to strengthen their work in urban areas based on the experience for safer cities for girls all programs all issues are lived realities of people so we do have to live through that reality to be able to get that awareness or appreciation for that i can only share what i have learned along the way in this entire journey so for for me i mean any issue like safer cities which is inherently disruptive to social norms has to be very conscious of isolating behavior and repercussions for me systemic interventions that engage all the actors in the ecosystem are a big positive just having inclusive policies systems or infrastructure alone is not enough we need bystanders you know i'm talking i'm talking about public spaces we need bystanders to become active change agents to reduce harassment and to make things safe and inclusive for all i mean you can have excellent infrastructure excellent bus stops excellent public spaces but if people are being harassers and i have nowhere to go and i have no support i mean so as part of the program we have safe houses in many cities so safe houses are what i mean they are not government institutional places in all in all cities so in some they are but they inherently spaces which are there and the routes that young people take so let's say on their road to school on their road to the market you know that they're regular uh, hanging out zones so these are spaces where they can reach out to in case they face any harassment you have 
the people there in those houses are trained, are aware, they will help you connect with solutions. They will help you connect with, let's say, legal support, or they will help you connect with police, or they will help you connect with the reporting system, something very, very basic. This is the idea. So the idea was to have these spaces. So in case I'm in a problem situation on the street, I can reach out to that person and they identify through whatever local needs they want to. This was the idea with which we started that. And, you know, working with young people and working with collaborative agencies across. Now, in some cities, you have local governments who are interested to support these safe spaces. So the people in those spaces, any one of those would be a trained volunteer, would be given let's like a community, you know, community support system or community outreach worker tag. They would be known. We've had a lot of shopkeepers who have uh, shops on their roads. We've had women who just sit there in front of their house. We have people who normally frequent that bus stop around that time. They have volunteered to be part of this. So you see that change in ideology, change in thought. It's, it's not a very big targeted intervention. It is not something for which you need a whole lot of money. You need awareness, you need access to information, and you need back-end support. That in itself has changed scenarios locally in many areas. So you need bystanders to become change agents. And once that is done, and when that network of community support system is there, I personally feel a significant amount of harassment will stop. So that's, that's one. For us, staying close to the core constituency of adolescent girls has kept us rooted and relevant. So I imagine that's going to be a big yes to others as well. Stay close to who you are, who are your core constituency. That is going to be a big one. Flexibility. Flexibility and adaptation. Local adaptation have to be inherently part of any development program, particularly urban ones, because the whole narrative is very dynamic. So collaborative investment in turning locally designed solutions into global assets, global outreach, so that connectedness is going to be useful where we cross-learn and we are able to feed off each other. I think another big takeaway or the, for me right now, for us as an organization as well, is that today's young people are quite widely connected through technology, media, and internet than ever before. So provided with the right platforms and support, these young people can play a critical role in contributing to action to ease some of the knock-on effects to gender equality and in formulating fair and just policies related to it. So investing in young people is more the need of the hour. And I think every organization, irrespective of whatever your core theme may be, it could be climate change, it could be access to spaces, it could be health solutions, education, anything. I feel connecting and empowering young people as a key agency is a critical ask nowadays. And we have a lot of platforms to support them. And perhaps even more so in cities where the ability to connect is likely to be higher. Where or what next for the programme? What are your ambitions for this next period? Well, we had a lot of ambitions for this year. But yeah, COVID has been a big leveler and a big rethinkers it has led us to rethink some of our strategies and how we can expand our remit so that is one part of it but in general um, now that we've made a lot of inroads into cities geographically also we are able to establish the need of age responsive strategies in many shared platforms so that's definitely there a big uh, remit for us includes uh, strengthening uh, leadership and meaningful participation of girls young women, girl-led organizations, and urban development planning and decision-making processes. So that's, that's the next stage, definitely, for many of our programs. Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of um, really, I mean, social, economic, political effects of the pandemic triggered by each state's differential efforts to contain the disease. So that has put young women in a very difficult situation we're seeing. And within, so somewhere that public space got transferred to your private spaces, to digital spaces, through your through social media, through WhatsApp, through so many things. So when you see that, you definitely have to rethink 
some of um, the approaches of how you navigate that space. And we, we have to be conscious of the digital public spaces now, very conscious of that. So how can we keep in touch with the program? Well, the best way to connect with the Safer Cities for Girls is to be a part of it. So please join us in this crusade that we have for safe and inclusive cities for girls. Uh, but apart from these cities that we're already working in, uh, you can uh, visit our website. So we look forward to connecting with you soon, in fact. I will look forward to people reaching out to us and, you know, benefiting from some of the resources that are already there in our website. And we'll make sure that all that key information is shared in the episode description. Thanks, Yulaili. Uh, it's been great with you and your colleagues and your, the young activists that you're working with to get this sense of how this amazing programme plays out in different cities in the world and to see all the, all the ideas and experiments that you're, that you're using to, to, to make change in these cities. So thank you so much. It's been a wonderful experience, so thank you very much, Vicky. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.